Western and African political leaders are calling for military intervention in Mali, the West African country struggling with Islamic militants, drought and food shortages. The United Nations General Assembly in New York this month heard several leaders express fears about the occupied parts of Mali serving as a haven for terrorists. But aid officials warned that armed intervention could exacerbate the humanitarian crisis in the region. This Radio New Zealand Insight program travels to Mali to find out more about the challenges facing an interim government that's only two months old. It's dusty, hot and crowded on the streets of Bamako, the capital city of Mali, on a typical working day in what's thought to be one of the fastest growing cities in the world. But this is also a city with heightened security under pressure from rebel forces. Just a few days ago, a new threat was issued by the leaders of Mujayo, one of two extreme Islamic groups currently in control of the country's north. It was in response to the roadside killing of several Mauritanian and Malian Islamists by the Malian army. People here in Bamako fear the rebel groups have the force to take the capital if they wish. I'm Kim Vanell, and this Inside investigates how Mali's security crisis is affecting the region and worsening serious food shortages. The bustling capital city is regarded as the key to ruling Mali. Whoever controls it controls the country. At present, two rebel Islamic groups are currently in control of Mali's north, known as Mujayo and Ansardine. Both have al-Qaeda links and are imposing strict Islamic law. A Mali-based security expert, whose words have been voiced over to protect her identity, says the groups have been bolstered by fighters from outside Mali. She says some are soldiers from Libya's deposed Gaddafi regime, who flooded south when there was nowhere else to go. But the support goes further than fighters, and the security expert believes the Mujail group is particularly strong. They have money from hostages ransom. They are supported by Islamic countries. They also receive weapons from these countries. And the other thing is they are really led by their beliefs. They don't have political agenda. They have religious agenda. I don't know which is better. Mujayo and Ansardine have had control of northern Mali since March, hijacking an initial takeover attempt by the Tuareg rebel group known as the MNLA. While the MNLA is losing power, pushed near the border of Mali and Niger, the well-funded Islamic groups continue to gain more ground. There are now reports of suspected thieves having limbs amputated and of public killings of men accused of murder. Both are in accordance with the strict form of Islamic law. Recently, a couple were stoned to death for having sex outside marriage, and the locally-based international security expert says enforcement of Sharia law is becoming more and more strict. The hand cuttings are more frequent. Recently, also at the end of Ramadan, at the end, the Mujao sent their own imam to the mosque of Gao, and they kicked out the other imam. So the Mujao imam is preaching very strong precepts. And not so long ago, they decided that the local radio cannot play any satanic music, European music. So now, basically, you have the reading of Quran on the radio. At the beginning of September, Mujayo announced its takeover of the city of Duenza, now its most southerly stronghold. 
The security expert says the public are increasingly afraid, but Mojao in particular is trying to get people on side by positioning itself as a prospective employer. The leaders of Mujiao, they recruited people from Gao. Young guys, they had no jobs. They recruited them. They pay them. They provide food at checkpoints. You can see very young guys, something like 13 or 14 years old. They have weapons. The government, though, is resisting using military intervention. Mali is led by an interim government formed in August in an effort to restore stability after a military coup in March. In July, the regional bloc, ECOWAS, threatened to expel Mali unless a unity government was installed. The coup provided the opportunity for Islamists and Tuareg separatists to seize the entire northern half of the country. A United Nations special air service is now the safest way for aid agencies and UN departments to travel outside the capital. Unemployed Malians who have fled the fighting in the north have swelled the ranks of looters and carjackers preying on motorists, making it too risky to travel by car. But if the government isn't keen to embrace outside help, what are its plans to re-establish peace? I'm on board a flight to Kai in the west to meet with Governor Mohamed Omaiga to find out about the government's proposals to deal with the insurgents. Four armed guards are on watch as the governor of Kai welcomes us into his large office. I ask him how long the government will continue negotiating with the rebels. His words are translated. He said that uh, Mali is a great country. We are uh, a country of dialogue and peace. So the situation in the north, we prefer to negotiate first. But uh, if uh, the negotiation fails, the president uh, has already sent a letter to ECOWAS in order to intervene. But the intervention is the last step. ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, is a group promoting peace, security and development in the region. It supports military intervention in Mali and has recently sent 3,000 troops to Bamako in case they're needed at short notice. The Mali-based security expert says decision-making time for the government is running out. We don't hear a lot about Ansardine, but Mujao mostly. And they really show they can do whatever they want, whenever they want. On the other side, you see the Malian army that is disorganized. Something funny is that they are waiting for weapons from July. It's like without these weapons, they can't do anything. Even if the Malian government does decide to call in international troops, such backing still requires clearance from the United Nations. The UN has said it will consider a request from Mali's government and has asked ECOWAS to prepare a plan with detailed options for using force. Civilians, meanwhile, are fleeing. More than 250,000 Malians have crossed the border, seeking refuge in the neighbouring West African countries of Mauritania, Niger and Burkina Faso. Nearly 200,000 people have been forced to leave their homes and find safety in other parts of Mali. With northern Mali out of bounds, we're on the bumpy road heading to the remote village of Kusane to see the effect migration is having. 
arriving in a convoy with humanitarian agency Oxfam, we're greeted by a huge welcoming party. Performing a dance in the midday sun and 35 degree heat, the women take centre stage. The chief of Kusane came to find us amid the celebration. His words are translated. He's talking about in 2011, 2012, there's been a really bad drought that affected his commune of Kusane, where we are right now, uh, and they've lost all harvest. The community was struggling uh, against famine, and the people who came to their help are the most welcome and are considered family. This visit comes at the peak of the lean season. That's the time between harvests, when cereal prices are the highest and stocks are the lowest. This lean season has been made worse by last year's bad harvest, meaning many sold off anything they had to survive. The Emergency Response Coordinator for Oxfam and Kai, Hasnat Hassan, says it's difficult to get a clear picture of how people are being affected. In terms of the refugee in the north, um, we don't have formal uh, registrations. We don't have government registrations that depicts a clear picture in the Kai, mainly because I think the, the, um, the institution, the forms and checks aren't in place because no one was expecting the situation to deteriorate so quickly in the north and for people to fear their lives to this extent. The chief of Kusane, though, says refugees are arriving, and before getting outside help, his village was desperate. He even saw families that went two to three days without food, without uh, cooking anything, because they didn't have anything to cook. They had no stocks, they had no food, and so they couldn't eat anything. The procession leads to the mayor of Kusane's house, where another crowd is waiting, this time for a food voucher distribution to get underway. Hasnat Hassan explains how the system works. There are 150 beneficiaries here today who come to receive their uh, monthly uh, food vouchers. Um, but as you can look around the room, there's more than 150 people. And this is basically because the entire villages of, of all these 150 people have come to say thanks, have come to show their appreciation. Names are called, fingerprints are taken, and a voucher worth 80 New Zealand dollars is handed over. The voucher has to last the average family of eight and often relatives for a month. For here, the family, uh, it's the unit of family, is much bigger than the self. And so when we help one person, we actually end up helping the entire family because they're together, um, they help each other, and so this is a show of, of that strength, of that resiliency. But it is still not enough. Outside the distribution room, one of those waiting is Amadou Diara. He says he's responsible for feeding 19 people. Amadou Diara is a farmer, but last year, due to a bad drought, he had no harvest at all.
There's really nothing in the village, no stock, no food, uh, no hope, and people were shaking. That's how badly hungry they were. People are shaking and they're scared and they're worried about the future. But while Amadou Diara is receiving help, most Malians will not. Across the country, four and a half million people may not have access to sufficient food in the coming months. Hasnat Hassan says it's difficult to know what could have been done to prevent the current food crisis. There's a, a combination of human and non-human factors in place that put people in, in this situation. Um, and so climate change being one of them, there's, uh, you know, not having access to land is another, um, not having access to seeds. And so all these, all these bits um, made it the crisis that we, that we see today. A significant drop in global cereal production is also playing its part. The United States has been hit by its worst drought in 60 years, while harvests in Russia, Ukraine and India are also below average. That's forced up food prices across the Sahel, the zone between the arid Sahara to the north and the belt of humid savannas to the south. It stretches from Senegal in the east to the Sudan in the west. Grain prices in the region are now 60% higher than the five-year average, but aid agencies can't help everyone. Oxfam's humanitarian coordinator for the Kai region, Emmanuel Kamat, explains how they decide who receives help first. We are looking for household according to the number of, of meal per day. What's the rate of meal per day? That's the most criteria of uh, selection. The second criteria was um, the lack of support from uh, the remitter system because uh, in the area... We have uh, several families, households, who uh, benefit from uh, remittance system from their uh, families who live in Europe. So this was another criteria. And we have uh, around four or five other general criteria, like uh, um, invalid people, handicapped people, uh, women who live uh, herself, or uh, a kind of woman who has uh, several kids. Emmanuel Kamat says villagers themselves also help in deciding who should receive aid. In most places, meetings are held, beneficiaries are discussed and eventually agreed on by the entire community. But the help is still not enough. Oxfam has opened a cereal bank in the Kai region of Medina, it will enable the community to buy grain right after harvest, when prices are low, and store it for next year's lean season. The cereal bank has been gifted to the community, but the mayor of the village, Bruno Diallo, says more help is needed. He's saying that it's also a, a, there's health problems here too. There isn't any hospitals, there's any pharmacies, there isn't any establishment to help them with their health needs, no clinics, anything. And so it's really uh, the people here, you know, don't food is good, but there's no water, no education, no hospitals, so really they're struggling as a community. Are demands like these an indication that aid agencies are creating dependency and exacerbating problems? Oxfam's Hasnata Sand says efforts are always made to build in local involvement. 
With humanitarian programs, it, we're always clear um, that it's a short-term program, and this 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 understanding is uh, shared with all stakeholders, including local stakeholders. So when when Oxfam comes in, we often work with partners to strengthen their capacities. Thus, when Oxfam leaves, the partners, a local NGO that you know is familiar with the context, is left with the skills, technical expertise that Oxfam came with. Even so, everywhere people are asking for more help. Can anything be done to build resilience? The governor of Kai, Mohamed Omaga, says there are many options for Mali to go forward. You say that uh, this region is not, uh, uh, the development of this region is not uh, only based on agriculture because uh, uh, the region has uh, many uh, other things uh, such as gold mines, immigrants, uh, people of this uh, region travel a lot. There are everywhere in Europe, in America, and so on. Then they contribute to the economy of the region. And it is also a region of breeding. We breed here. Uh, so the development is not uh, only linked in uh, agriculture. But uh, this year we hope with uh, uh, the rain, the area of GEMA provide uh, usually provide the, the region in grains, in crops, so it will do. However, Mali remains one of the 25 poorest countries in the world. Its government has given little away about its plan to tackle food insecurity long term. The current government has been in place less than two months, replacing an earlier government which was the result of a coup which ousted the democratically elected Prime Minister Ahmadzo Tumani Toure. Farmer Ahmadzo Ziara says with all the unrest, the leaders are forgetting the people. He said that the government did help initially when the uh, during the, the lean season with one food distribution, um, but unfortunately they didn't continue the food distribution. So when Oxfam came, he said that people hadn't eaten for months because they only had one distribution of food and it wasn't enough. The coup was over the president's perceived inability to deal with the then Tuareg takeover of the north. It was eventually described as an own goal, political instability paving the way for the two extreme Islamic groups to gain control from the Tuaregs. The government is now facing accusations it's allowing coup leaders to interfere in its decision over how to tackle the insurgents. The locally based international security expert says those accusations are realistic. This Captain Sanogo is very influential and is still the guy behind everything here in Bamoko in the army. That's one of the problems. The actual president has trouble both here in Mali and abroad regarding his credibility because of the captain that he is still in the shadows, unofficially controlling everything. Back on the road, this time I'm heading to Degolfri in the Yalamani region, where the town is under pressure due to the number of displaced Malians. Wa 
While tens of thousands of people are still living in camps just outside the area the Islamic extremists control, here in the small settlement of De Golfri, the flow-on effect of internal refugees is being felt. The population in the wider region is slowly growing, putting more pressure on already short food supplies, forcing people in De Golfri to pay more and eat less. <laughs> Under the shade of an acacia tree, I meet mother of eight, Niame Dukore. She says her growing family wouldn't survive without help from outside aid agencies. When the drought hit, their harvests were really bad. Um, and the rains were not that good. So before the drought, they, uh, before the, cr- the crisis, they were eating two to three meals a day. After the drought, they barely could manage one meal. So sometimes they ate, sometimes they didn't. And so that included the children. Um, they would scrape by whatever they had, um, uh, twigs, leaves, fruits, um, whatever they could do, but it would only measure up to one meal a day. Niami's husband left the Golfri nearly a year ago to find work in nearby Mauritania. Men commonly leave their families during lean seasons in Mali, heading for Nigeria, Burkina Faso or Mauritania. Niami's husband has never sent anything back. Kids also uh, were pulled out of school to go to uh, work, and so this is where the older kids would go fetch water, um, would wash clothes for money, um, would go fetch firewood that they would then sell for food. Celebrations later in the day are to go thank you to the international aid agencies and the governments who help them. But the people here know their village and thousands like it across Mali cannot rely on outside help forever and must instead look to Mali's government for aid. But with rebels putting increasing pressure on the government and political instability, many believe the government is helping to keep them in a constant struggle for survival. I'm Kim Vanell and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. That Insight program was written and presented by Kim Vanell. Production was by Philip Atolli with technical production by Chris Keogh.